Hi everyone, my name is Margaret Butel. I'm part of the Blue Mountains Camino Group in Australia and I'm honoured and a little nervous, to be honest, to help Dan out with his weekly podcast. Dan has been told to keep his speaking to a bare minimum as he works with a therapist to bring his voice back to full strength. You've probably all heard that he damaged his vocal cords and is going to be out of action for at least two months. In the meantime, he's asked pilgrims from around the world to conduct interviews on his behalf. And I'm delighted to be with you this week, together with Eileen and Richard. We are here in Sydney, and we're going to be talking about hospitaleros. This is a a topic very dear to Eileen and, and Richard. And what I'm going to ask Eileen first is to tell us about her first hospitalero experience. Yes. Um, so that was um, that was our first experience. We've always been hospitaleros together, Richard and I, which makes our life quite easy, actually. So our first experience was in 2018 at the Parroquial Albergue San Miguel in Estella on the Camino Frances. Um, so that's just after... Just after Pamplona? Pamplona. Yes, right. just off yeah. I'll just have to Puente la Reina. Puente la Reina, yeah. thank you. Puente la Reina. Yes, so it's a little parochial um, albergue um, with about 40 beds, so just very crowded bunk bed rooms, mm. two rooms, uh, one little bathroom for men, one even smaller bathroom for mm-hmm. women, which is unusual that the women's is smaller. Uh, and it was a lovely little albergue. Um, it was... Uh, it was a bit of a baptism of fire because we arrived on our very first day. You have a day to hand over with the other hospitaleros. Right. But they um, they had to leave quite early and so we didn't have a full day. And on the day as we were handing over, we all discovered that both bed, both of the dorms had quite serious infestation of bed bugs. So oh, that, was our, that was our literally our sort of like... Right. <laughs> what do we do now? Bed bugs. That's the word you don't want to hear no. when you're on the Camino, no. especially on your first day arriving. I, d- I did learn to say it in six different languages. <laughs> Very useless accomplishment. But, yeah. And our favourite is Korean, which is bedobuggle. <laughs> right. So, but, what did you have to do? To well, we put in place some bugs? protocols. Uh, so, we weren't allowed to close. Uh, it was quite. Um, we liaise with the local person. You're, you're always allocated a, a local contact who said it was quite clear that we could not close. So we closed one of the rooms that seemed to have the most bed bugs mm. and sprayed very liberally. And as as other people arrived, said to them on that first day, you're very welcome to stay. We're open, but we have a lot of bed bugs at the moment. So we kind of bent the rules a little bit. We didn't say we were closed. But, but people uh, would just say, okay, yeah. thanks. Mm. So we did that for two days, yes. and then we opened up one of the rooms fully because we had sprayed. We, and then we had a yeah. little regime of asking people to put their their backpacks in a plastic bag, which we supplied, and leave them out in the sun and not take their backpacks into the room. Very clever idea. I've also heard about putting your clothes in a dryer. Yes. Um, was that something that We didn't have a dryer. We did tell people that they could use the one in town. I think one or two people might have done that. Yeah. So, yeah. 
we were very minimally resourced. So that was our sort of baptism of fire. And in terms of what it was like, it was hard work, but it was brilliant. It was a fantastic um, uh, experience. Um, we were very lucky we had a little courtyard. Mm. Not exactly a garden, but a little courtyard. Yes. Yeah. And there was a guitar in the albergue. So we decided that we would have pilgrim meetings in the evening. And, uh, and so we would invite the pilgrims to come. We had a little bit of incredibly cheap wine and, a, you know, some fruit. And we would sit around in the evening. And what we did is we had poems. And as the pilgrims arrived, we would ask them to translate the poem. We had two poems related yeah. to walking. And we would ask the, um, the pilgrims to translate them into their own language. And so we built up this little bank of handwritten pilgrim translations. What a great idea. Yeah. Until yeah. no matter what. And that's so right. inclusive. You're actually yeah. you're inviting everybody then to participate well, in their own language. You, know, you get someone come in, oh, you're Lithuanian. We haven't got Lithuanian. Can you translate this for us? So. <laughs> it was just yeah. fantastic. Yeah, it was. It was great. And so we would open the evening with one of them. And uh, the rule was when people were speaking, you would listen. So one pilgrim would mm. read the poem in Lithuanian, then another one in German, and then another one in Spanish. And it was just a lovely, quiet, yes. uh, listening, respectful space, oh, yeah. wasn't it? People really enjoyed it. It was a lovely thing to do, yeah. I think. It really worked. Yeah. And um, they could. some people play the guitar, some people would sing, mm. some yeah. people would just want to share something with the group. And it's one of those situations where you would just sit in a circle and just be a little bit brave enough sometimes to let the silence develop and then something would happen. Yeah. Does that make sense? It sounds lovely and I can see where you, both your training as trainers and teachers yeah. Yeah. come through very strongly there. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And what was the day-to-day -day activity and routine like as Hospitaleros? Okay, um, so we had to, um, we, we provided breakfast there, so we'd get up just before six o'clock just to supervise it and, and watch over people, you know, get the coffee, get bread, if things run out, get more of it. Um, people would kind of start to leave, you say goodbye. People would be out by eight o'clock. Eight o'clock, that's when we started in on the bed bug disposal, the washing, the cleaning. You have to clean the whole albergue, you have to clean everything. And with the bed bugs as well. That would make it, yeah. That was a it, massive hunt yeah, every morning. More, yeah, mm. yeah. That would take us till about 11 o'clock, I think. Uh, then we'd go um, into town. Sometimes we would go off and do shopping. One of the people from the parish would take us shopping. Or we would go into the town and have a coffee and, and breakfast. Uh, we'd come back, um, we'd get back into Alberga, probably hide in case people turned up. And uh, at one o'clock, we would open up, uh, and then we'd start registering people, greeting them, showing them the bed bug protocol, showing them the, the rules and the procedures and everything in the Alberga. Um, obviously, give them, or you see, give them lemonade. This is making lemonade and a, oh, wow. a little, slice, <laughs> little slice of watermelon, which they thought was just, yeah. just paradise. So we've done that at all our albergues. Yeah. We, Richard got really good at making real lemonade. The previous hospitaler showed me the recipe and it's a good yeah. one. Yeah. Wow, really good. what and a treat. And then we just cut, we get just whatever fruit is cheap, like... Um, many watermelon. Watermelon. It's, yeah. And Ch so when you up. open the door, you, just, you can just say, welcome. You know, we're yeah. open. There's a bed for you. It's all yeah. good. 
would you like something to drink? Would you like something to so, eat? Yeah. And then in the evening, we would have the um, the programme meeting. Um, we'd always be on hand to ask questions. People want to ask about the next stage, to about yes. all kinds of things. Um, once everything had been cleared out from the evening meeting, uh, we then had to set out breakfast for the next day. We should set it out before you yeah. went to bed. So having got up at just before 6 o'clock, just after 10 o'clock, making sure the door was shut... Um, we collapsed into bed. Yes. That was, a, that was it. But, you know, before we collapsed into bed, we used to, because we had this tiny little room with yeah. a, in a bunk bed, um, uh, We because we just had our pilgrim meeting... We would debrief, wouldn't it we? It would be like, what just happened tonight? That was yeah. incredible. Yeah. It was really great. It was so really great. Just, yes, really incredible experiences, yeah. 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 So, do you have a, a favourite story about yes. being a hospitalero? Because I know that you've been hospitalero more than once. Yes, actually, it was from that first time. Um, so it was to do with the evening meetings we had. Now people would come in, would you know, after a bit, would ask them to sit down and translate the poem for us. Okay, a couple came in. Uh, they were from Sweden. Um, so a young woman and her partner didn't actually look very Swedish. It turned out he wasn't. He was originally from Afghanistan. He was well, a refugee. He was, he, he was Swedish, Swedish, yes, but yeah, but yeah. Uh, he no. was, he was, yes. No. Um, anyway, uh, he was, so uh, his first language was Parsi. So, haven't got Parsi, okay. So there he is, he's sitting down translating our poems into Parsi. And another pilgrim came in, took one look at what he was doing, said, you're a Parsi speaker. It turns out that the new pilgrim was from Iran, a tourism lecturer. Now, the young man from Sweden, Ahmed, hadn't spoken a Parsi, I think, for years. So they just chatted away for, for hours, you know. Anyway, in the evening, uh, we're sitting around having our, our usual meeting. Okay. And, um, you know, after a bit, there's a bit of a silence. And then Ahmed sort of, well, let's put his hand up and says, May I sing a song? Yeah, of course. So he said, yeah, this is a song. It's about a young man who leaves his country, leaves his family, his friends. He leaves everything he knows. And he's far away. He's very lonely, doesn't know if anyone will ever love him again. And this is his song. Okay. So I just sat there, his mouth open, and this haunting, lilting strange melody just came out of his mouth you know just floated in the air and just for that moment it's like we're all sitting on a mountain in Afghanistan wow what a beautiful experience yeah. but heart-wrenching as well and then the song yeah. went on for about three minutes and he finished and everyone's just <laughs> you know not a dry eye in the house we're all kind of stunned and he just said thank you wow yeah, yeah and that was yeah, that was um, really an experience. You, you know, made, made an impression on us. Actually, really. Lasting. Oh, we've never forgotten. Never forgotten. Mm. Yeah. Those yeah. are those special Camino moments, and yeah. you just yes. yeah. absolutely. Um, the Camino yeah. draws people in from all over the world, yeah. and it's a place where you're not judged for where mm. you've come from, yeah. for your beliefs, yeah. Um, yeah. and where people can acknowledge. Yeah. Yeah. your background and I think because we were all sitting outside in a circle and there was space yes we also had a sort of a, not a rule but we had a practice where if you spoke if you didn't speak we found out what languages people mm. spoke so if you spoke no English and no Spanish if you only spoke Farsi we would find 
Farsi is a bad example. You only spoke Dutch. That's a bad example. Sorry, the Dutch Mm. always speak other languages. Or Polish. You only speak Polish. There would Mm. be, we would find someone else who could translate. And so we would wait while it was translated for you and Mm. then wait while it was translated. So there was a lot of moments where we were just sitting while other people were translating because we wanted to make sure that everyone was included and that no one was Uh. left behind because they couldn't follow what was going on. So there was space for him. And I think it was important for him. He just felt he belonged. I think that's very hard for him. You know, to leave your country, go to a very different country, yeah, to feel that you belonged somewhere. And you got, both created this safe space well, where, where he could express himself, yeah. which is really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, people, um, people shared all sorts the of things. The community does that, yeah. I think. Mm. Yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Eileen, do you want to tell us a little bit more about why you volunteered? Um, how many times have you been a hospitalero now, you and Richard? Well, we've been, um, yeah, we've been hospitaleros three times now. Um, so our first was in Estella. Um, our second was in um, Portugaletti on the Camino del Norte. And our third one was last year, just post-COVID, in um, El Burgo Ranero, which is on the Meseta, on the Frances. Yeah. So three very different experiences. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but we've also got the experience, I think, four times now in our local uh, Camino group. Blue Mountains Camino group. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, they run five-day Camino training exercises, and in that time everyone stays in um, a guest house, which is sort of converted into an albergue. And so... Richard and I, I think maybe four I think so, I know, I've, I've lost count. Yeah, I've have been hospitaleras there. So that's a very different experience because it's not in Spain, but it has very similar uh, dimensions mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. And, and tell us why you're drawn to being hospitaleros. <laughs> um, this is giving up two weeks of your time, your yeah. holiday time. Yeah. Where weeks. are you dealing with bed bugs, um, <laughs> pilgrims who maybe know. you can't converse with, cleaning bathrooms, yeah. Um, yeah. getting up early to cook breakfast? Well, what's what's the appeal to you? Well, initially, our motivation was we had, like everybody else, we get, we get so much from the community. Mm. Our motivation was how can we give back? And it's a very obvious way of giving back. Um, We wanted to support the Camino because we really believe that donativo albergues, low-cost albergues, keep the Camino alive. None of us want a Camino which is only accessible to people. They keep the spirit of it alive, don't they? They There's nothing wrong with staying in private accommodation, but not everyone can afford that. And so we really wanted, we want to keep that aspect of the Camino going. And that can only be done with volunteers. So, you know, we thought... We've got a lot out of the Camino, and it would be nice to give something back, you know? Mm. Um, the other thing, actually, that's really rewarding about, for me, about um, being at Hospitalero, is you suddenly begin to realise this sort of huge, almost army, this infrastructure, this system in Spain that keeps it going. Because as you walk, you're completely unaware of it. But you start to become aware of it when you're a Hospitalero. Not a time and effort and thought the local people, Spanish people, put into it unsung 
unthanked, unpaid, unacknowledged, and uh, just having a link into that mm. kind of um, network. Yes, whereas being a hospice, you're kind of high profile. They know who you are. They see yeah. what you're doing. What they don't see is the, the oh. woman in the village who works every single day yes. um, making sure that the albergue is supplied and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So our motivation was to give back. The, the problem with that is as follows. Could backfire a little bit, didn't it? Yeah, you, you inevitably get more from the experience than you give. <laughs> so I think I in terms of, uh, I think we're, yeah. we're still in deficit. We're, we're still getting, getting a lot out of the Camino. I don't yeah. think we've actually yeah. repaid that debt. Well, I, I hope that you um, continue to stay in that debt because <laughs> you both are excellent hospitaleros, both over in Spain and uh, in, in the Blue Mountains as well. We've come to rely on you um, and your expertise to really deliver a great Camino training experience. It's, it's, um, a, it's a privilege. Yeah. It's a privilege yeah. to yeah. be able to do it. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Wonderful. Um, Tell us how you become a hospitaler, or how did it be- you got you particularly become a hospitaler? I become a hospitaler. Okay, well, once we knew there was such a thing, um, we kind of looked at how you could become one, and um, I think it's actually at the annual was it the um, Camino conference in the Blue Mountains, and I even found out about Julianne Milne's courses. Okay, she runs a course for hospitalers. So, um, the first I did the two-day course. Um, Julianne very kindly gave me a kind of one-to-one course. Okay, so once you finish the course, um, two-day course, um, you provide your details to the trainers, and they pass your details on to HOSFOL, the organisation in Spain, Hospitalarios Voluntarios. Um, and um, once you've applied, uh, they will then, you, you actually have to tell them when you're available. You say, look, we're free this half a month, um, and they will assign you to uh, General Berge, and that's basically it. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. So you do the two-week training, you apply first through your trainer. Um, once you've done your first stint, um, in following years, you can apply directly to hospital in Spain. And you tell them when you're available, and they tell you where they want you. Mm. So the spirit of it is, you say, I am available in these two weeks, and then they send you where you're needed. It's not really, uh, it's not really a situation where you say, I really want to work at this albergue. You you, you essentially yeah. just let them send you wherever, where you need and it. that's fun because you never know yeah. where you're going to be. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like like our, our second scent was in um, the sports. Centre in Portugalete. Um, once a year, or six months of a year, um, they'll use the aerobics room, kick out the yoga mats, put in a load of bunks and lockers. Um, and that was it. Yeah. Very basic, very functional. Yeah. But in some ways, more kind of more rewarding yeah. because it, you're, you're filling a need. You know. Um, yes, and that goes back to what you were saying before because that albergue was run because it was only short term in the summer. Mm. Uh, it was run only by local people. Yeah. And someone was sick and they had a shortage. And so we went there at very short notice. And so that's where what you were giving back to and supporting there was the local community 
who support yeah. the mm-hmm. albergue. Yeah, taking the load off them yeah. as much as the right. right. much as programs. And the organisation Hospital, they they then um, reach out to the municipal albergues, those that are um, donativo, um, to see where the need is. They have a list of actual lists of was it about seventeen. Uh, you know, WTO albergues. Yeah. But I think they network, they're linked into like the, the grapevine. So quite often, someone, you know, municipal or local association will say, oh, we need someone. I know, let's see if hospital can, can help us out. But they have 17 albergues they regularly find volunteers for. And I think they help out other organisations. Yes, well, that time in Portugal, it was definitely yeah. a case of that yeah. happening. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. Um, now we know that Julianne Milne has um, worked tirelessly for the last eight years on on the Australian Hospital Hour program. She founded it mm. um, back in 2015, and I think to date she's trained almost 200 Australians to be hospitaleros. Mm. Um, she decided that early in 2023 it was time to retire mm. and hand over the baton, um, and now she's. Um, handed that over to you guys Richard and Eileen yes um, she's left quite a legacy and we want to say mm. a really big thank you Julianne for absolutely your devotion it's just done Trojan work yeah. absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. and you guys have got some big shoes to fill um, yes <laughs> not that we're nervous <laughs> but now tell us how um, you ended up um, taking over the and or being in charge of the Australian Hospital Era program well, we've kind of um, kept in touch with Julianne, one way or the other, through through meetings since um, you know since she trained us. Um, we've helped her out on a couple of um, courses, um, so she knows we're experienced hospitalers. She's worked with us on training courses. Um, also, she knows that we we've been involved in as our education as teachers and language instructors. So I think when she thought about someone to take over from her, and also we live in Sydney, that's another advantage, so I think she thought we would be the best candidates for us. And so mm. she asked us, mm. and we talked about it a little bit with her, you know, discuss what would be involved. And, well, as of this year, um, we're, yeah, taking over, basically. Keeping the keeping the courses running. Mm. Yeah. Well, I couldn't think of two more qualified oh. and and more um, <laughs> focused, devoted people than you guys. Thank um, you. Having seen you in action in the Blue mm. Mountains <laughs> and hearing you speak about why you do hospitalera work, um, I think we are very fortunate in Australia to have mm. the two of you <laughs> and your background okay. as trainers um, are going to really put. Um, more Australians out there as hospitalaries, yeah. I'm quite sure. Um, do you want to tell us, Aline, a little bit about the programme, of what you have in mind um, with, with the programme yeah. over the next year? Well, the aim of the programme is, is just one aim, really. It's to convert Australian pilgrims who want to, obviously, it's not a forced conversion, <laughs> to, to encourage them to become hospitaleros. Because because there are hospitaleros out there. The, we should say at the Donativo Albergues, 80, maybe 90% of the hospitaleros are Spanish. 
But from the international community, from America, mm. from Canada, from the UK, some of the Dutch albergues, for example, there is an international community as well. So we want Australia represented yes. there. Uh, <laughs> the under, yeah, underrepresented yeah. at the moment. Let's get more Australians yeah. over there. Yes. And also our aim is to grow the hospitalero training team so that we have people who are training can tr deliver in different states because at the moment it is very uh, New South Wales focused and we really want to develop that so we've got a trainer for example in WA who can generate interest in WA and deliver programs in WA etc. So we're hoping to grow the program. That's, that sounds mm. fantastic because we know there's a lot of Australians around mm. Um, mm. that would like to be part of the program if it, if it was uh, in their backyard. Yeah. And to become a hospitalero, the only requirement is that you have walked a Camino. Uh, there, it's sort of um, desirable that you have actually stayed in an albergue, but it's not essential. The only requirement, the program we run is the HOSVOL program which is from the um, um, Spanish organization. And they it's their program that we deliver. It's their rules that we adhere to. And their rule is you just that you must have walked a Camino. So we probably have close to 10,000 Australians that will qualify them. Do you think we do? I think at least. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> even 20,000 Australians. Okay. So I think you've got a lot of training on your hands yeah. coming up. Yeah. <laughs> and... I believe you've got your first training in January 2024. Yes, so that is scheduled for Sydney. So the program, the way that Julianne has been managing it to date, is she's always run one in Sydney in January, and we will keep that up. And she's gone interstate whenever there's been sufficient demand. Um, so we're running our first one in Sydney on the weekend of January the 21st and 22nd, so we'll be getting more information out about that. Mm -hmm. But um, we are very open to the possibility of more courses elsewhere if there are, for example, local Camino groups who feel that they have sufficient demand amongst experienced pilgrims, we will um, talk to them and find a way of delivering a programme. That sounds really exciting. Yeah. yeah. Well done. <laughs> um, now, obviously, you both have a love for the Camino, um, goes without saying. <laughs> um, Richard, when... Did the Camino first come into your life? That's a, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, I gave it some thought, and the more I thought about it, I realised that actually the idea of pilgrimage is kind of woven all through our culture. You know, mm -hmm. I remember growing up, grew up in England, a little path from one village to the next called the Pilgrim's Way. Just about every mm -hmm. village in England has a Pilgrim's mm -hmm. Way. You know. High school, we studied Chaucer's Canterbury Tales about the Canterbury Pilgrims. Our school here was actually um, you know, the John Bunyan, Who Would a True Pilgrim Be? That was our school hymn. <laughs> um, when I was 19, um, I read a book called um, As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning, which is by Laurie Lee. And in 1936, he kind of set out and walked through Spain. Nothing to do with the Camino, just this idea of walking through Spain and, you know, pick up little things about um, about the Camino, radio programmes, articles, this kind of thing. But I think what gave the idea critical mass actually was when um, Eileen decided to do the Camino because she did her first one with a friend. And once she did it, I thought, 
I want to do that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's basically... Yeah. And what did Eileen come back with that made you think you wanted to do the Camino yourself? Um, good question, actually. She obviously gained a lot from it, yeah? Um, and she told all these stories about meeting people, these little incidents and anecdotes that happened, you know, you know, um, old ladies leaning out of the window and showing them the way and, uh, you know, meeting people from different country mm. and the scenery and the food and the wine, obviously. Mm. But it, it was obviously just a powerful experience for her. Mm. But I th- yes. I think, you know, once she said she wanted to do it, I thought, yeah, I want to as well. I couldn't because our, our two children were too small. Mm. But, um, yeah, I mean, mm. when you came back, you said, I want to go again. Yeah, I think it, as we all know, don't yeah. we? <laughs> <laughs> El Camino <You> Engancha. <laughs> you get sucked in. Yeah. yeah, and since then, we have walked all, we've regularly walked Caminos since then. Yeah. We've walked lots of different Caminos, and mm. we have always walked together. Having said that, we don't always walk together together during the day. We certainly don't walk along chatting during the day. But because we tend to walk Caminos which are less walked, so the last Camino, for example, that we walked was the Ruta de la Lana from Alicante up to Burgos. And in that time of five five, five, five weeks, five weeks yeah. we saw two pilgrims. Wow. Yes, yes. Okay. And the time before that we walked the Camino Olvidado, which means the forgotten Camino. And how many pilgrims do we meet on that? None, I don't think we met anyone who's actually doing the Olvidado. We met one, one guy, um, obviously a pilgrim, and we said we're on the Olvidado. He said, what? It just so happened that another Camino intersected it, you know, yeah. and he was walking the opposite direction. And we just happened to meet. He was just, he was absolutely astonished. <laughs> you know, this was as in a Spanish, Spanish yeah. pilgrim, astonished to find that this, this Camino existed and he was actually on it. Yeah. And so that is quite, it's, it's good that we do walk together because almost invariably we are the only people in the tiny little albergue. And sometimes it's a stretch to call it an albergue. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes it's just as well. There's some of them only have four beds anyway. Yeah, yeah. And, and villages where there's almost nothing there. And so it's actually quite good to have company on, yes. on those kinds of routes. Yeah. 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 And that's obviously a very different experience to walking the Camino Frances. Yeah. Um, mm. Is that something that you um, choose to not do because you find it too busy and there aren't, isn't as much time for reflection? Are, are you walking those Caminos? Um, We've done sections of the Frances, for, haven't we? For more personal reflection time? I think, I mean, we do, obviously, when we're hospying twice, we've been on the Frances, and what we have walked on sections of the Frances when a Camino that we're on intersects it for a mm-hmm. while, and then we'll walk along the, the Frances before we hive off onto another one. Why? That's a good question, Margaret. I think um, some people love the solitude um, of, of the walking and just the, the, the ritual, the um, stepping across the wide expanse of, of Spain without having that, that interruption of other pilgrims. Mm. Um, but others look for the social yeah. side. They like the people experience. I think um, for me it is not primarily a social experience. I think it is primarily a reflective experience. But I have to say, we're both quite competent in Spanish, so mm. we can get a lot of social interaction in the villages and things yeah. 
that we pass through. So that might make a difference. And I think that's not a compensation, that's a plus, because, you know, you're in this country. We, we, we both love Spain, and it's an opportunity to meet a lot of Spanish people. Mm -hmm. Now, in the Frances, obviously, the people in the bars and the cafes are from all over the world, and you only meet Spanish people if they're working as, you know, as hospitality mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. But certainly, for example, on the Andalana, every night, we'd have a conversation with a local person. Yes, really the one remaining person in the village, usually. <laughs> <laughs> the one that's there, yeah. Yes. Well. But it was quite interesting as well as Hospitaleros, particularly in Estella, which was is probably about 10 days into the Frances for people who start. So if it, or if that, yeah. Maybe a week for people yeah. who start at Saint-Jean. And I had conversations with quite a few people who had formed a Camino family, in inverted commas, and were loving it, they loved those people, but said, I kind of want to spend some time by myself, but I don't know how to let them go. Um, so you could see that they were loving the social aspect of it and were very connected with their family, mm. but they were also yearning for some more reflective time. And they found it quite difficult. And so we've both had, over the times we've done it, conversations mm. with people about... So why did you come on Camino? What was it that, you know, and trying to sort of help people understand you don't have to stay with that same group of people if you don't want to. It's okay to spend some time alone. Yeah. I think the challenge can be that you feel you might offend the others. Yes. If you say, oh, sorry, I want to walk okay. on my own or actually I'm going to stay a day. Yes. Um, I am aware that some pilgrims will just say, look, I'm going to have a rest day. Yes. To give themselves a break. Break. And, yeah. and then meet up with new people. Yes. Um, yeah. But both of you being able to speak Spanish, I think, must be a real plus and the fact that you can engage with the locals most pilgrims tend to engage with other pilgrims um, you have the added bonus of being able to engage with yeah. with the community in which you're walking yeah. through yeah. as well and getting far more depth about the Spanish culture um, mm. and and how how the locals are living yeah um, which which is a wonderful experience yeah we're very lucky in that regard sure yeah, we're very um, lucky. Do you have a, a favourite Camino story that you'd like to share with us, Ali? Um, I do. I have lots, but I won't yes. tell you all of them. <laughs> <laughs> we might not have enough time. We'll have to get Dan to give us another hour. <laughs> okay, so the experience that I'd like to share is one that still influences me. And it was uh, in 2012 when we were walking the Via de la Plata in the south of Spain. And it was hot, and we would leave very early in the morning. And it's quite flat in that area. And so we were walking along, and as, as the light was coming up, we could see that there was someone walking ahead of us. Uh, and we came up on that person quite quickly, so we realised they were walking slowly. And as we got nearer, we realised it was a pilgrim, you know, the backpack, the sticks. And as we got even nearer quite quickly, we realised that it was someone doing it quite tough. They were obviously uh, Not moving yeah. very slowly. Yeah. And we drew level. And it was this elderly uh, woman who turned out to be Elsie in, from France in her mid-80s. 
carrying a very big backpack, I have to say. And so we chatted with her as best as we could because she spoke no Spanish, no English. Awful French. We, we, we have awful French. Yeah, no, no, she, was, she was quite fluent. <laughs> and, um, but we checked she was okay. And it turned out that she was going to the same albergue as we were. So we said, okay, you know, we'll meet you there. And so we met up with her when she rolled in a bit later. And there was a lovely Italian pilgrim there who spoke French and English. And so we all went out to dinner. And we heard Elsie's story. And Elsie's story I found very moving. Um, She, as I said, she was in her mid-80s. Her husband had died about 10 years before. And they had always walked Camino together. And he had died about 10 years prior. Charles, his name was, I remember. And um, she now lived with her adult children and their children. Uh, But every year, she would go to Spain and walk some Camino. And her children would say, Mom, Mom, you know, you can't do this alone. You know, you don't speak Spanish, you're old. And she said she would say, but... And she sort of turned to us and said, but they don't understand. I'm not alone. I walk with Charles. And I'm going to start crying. (laughs) And um, we walk together. We talk. We remember our lives. uh, We laugh a lot. Sometimes we cry. We hold hands. And uh, that's our time together. And after that time, I go back to my family. Um, And uh, I was really moved by this idea that you you carry with you the people that you've lost you know they're real in your life and then um we were a tad worried about her because the next day was a long day and it was hot and so i rang the albergue to ask if they could save a bed and of course albergues won't save beds but i explained that this was an elderly woman who would get there but she might, it might take her some time. And the hospi was a lovely guy, and he said, okay, you convinced me, I will hold her in bed. <laughs> so I went back and I said to her, Elsie, good news. Uh, there's a bed for you tomorrow. They'll hold it for you. And she said, oh, he always does that. And I said, what? And she said, he always sends someone to look after me. And so not only did she walk with Charles, but Charles was looking after her. And for me, the the idea, if I am 85 or 86 and I can go to a country where I speak none of the language and just trust that there will be a bed for me and everything will be right, that leap of faith, that for me Mm. is the essence of what the Camino is. That's a beautiful story. Mm. And... You're right. That is the essence of the Camino. Mm. We have this phrase that sounds really trite now. The Camino provides. Mm. Um, what you're expressing there is really the kindness of strangers, yeah. the kindness of people, mm. yeah. just humanity stepping up yeah. and helping people yeah. um, without you know thinking yeah. it through in yeah. detail, yeah. just saying... Yeah person needs a bed yeah um, and, and she, yeah. she wasn't she wasn't checking for granted you know um she would have walked without the promise of a bed if um Aline hadn't yes. rung ahead for her yeah yeah she would have done yeah. but the fact yeah. is you did yeah you know? and yeah i found i i still think of elsie today yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. the strength there yeah it's a lovely story yeah um over to you, Richard, and a slightly different pilgrimage. Um, 
um, you've recently returned from walking different routes of the Kimono Kodo pilgrimages in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, what routes did you walk in? Do you want to tell us a little bit about how those pilgrimages in Japan are different to the European Kaminos? Right, yes. We walked to the um, Nakaheshi, which is the one that most people would walk. Um, I also walked the Koheshi. Um, it's a little bit different, well, it's very different in some respects. There's no kind of final destination or endpoint. Um, it's a Buddhist Shinto um, pilgrimage, and the important thing is the shrines you visit. So it's a whole network covering a particular area. So people will go from shrine to shrine. Uh, it's in the Key Peninsula, which is the south tip of the biggest island. A little bit like Galicia in many ways, because it's very mountainous, very rainy, and it's got this slightly otherworldly, strange um, mystique about it. Um, so shall I talk about the accommodation? There's, there are no albergues. Uh, no albergue system. Um, if you want to do it, you, you have to book. That's the only way you can actually do it. Um, also, the um, the paths are actually... They're not like the um, Camino. It's quite flat and level. It's actually quite quite mountainous. Mm. It's mountainous yeah. and the the tracks are very... You, you can't lose yeah. the track. Yeah. Um, no, they're quite well waymarked. That's yes. one, one thing they have in common. Very yeah. well marked. But they are very rough. So a lot of the time it's ancient mm. slippery stone or mm. tree roots. or So it's the kind of walking where you, you really need... You look at the ground mm. every... You can't stride out and sort of meditate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like that at all. And you're not going to be a group of ten pilgrims all walking in a bunch no. together. No, no. You're not side by side. <laughs> no, it's a very, very long single file. You know, be, yeah. 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 Um, Did so you get a feel of that sort of spiritual side of the pilgrimage that you were walking there? Did, did it resonate in that way? With very you? much, because it's that kind of space. You know, very steep, misty, tree-clad mountains. And all along the route, they have little, um, what they call them? Gyms. Deep, Jins, like a little shrine. Yeah. Little shrine, little yeah. stone statue, yeah. and people will leave offerings like little coins, bottles, and also, I never quite worked out why, broken um, crockery. Little bits of cups and plates would be left here. Yeah. So, and also, they, um, a lot of the statues had these red kind of bibs on them, didn't they? Yes, because the jins are spirits that protect uh, unborn babies. And also babies that uh, have been born but haven't made it. And so you and they were dressed in time, babies' yeah. clothes uh, a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting, yeah. isn't it? Mm. Um, and... There was one one part, um, the Kohechi was particularly difficult, and in one of your posts I read that you said it's the most taxing, physically taxing walk um, you've ever done. <laughs> it might be because of my age, but it was actually. Um, okay, so the Kohechi route, um, it's kind of a north-south road. It goes from Koyasan, um, a monastery set up in the 9th century, um, down to the main shrine. And it just cuts a straight line across about four mountain passes. So um, every day you would get up and you would kind of climb maybe 800 metres up and then 800 metres down again the other side, all in the distance of maybe, you know, five or six kilometres. 
So, you know, and, and carrying a pack, obviously. So I'm climbing up, I'm climbing down again. So it's, yeah, it was very, very hard work. Um, also, you have to be a little bit careful on this trail. Um, the mountains are very steep. It's an area where they have a lot of storms and earthquakes and landslides are quite frequent. So every so often, there's a break in the trees and there's like um, a, well, a slip. Uh, it's just scree. So there's a path across it. Um, now, if you fall over um, anywhere else, you just can't against a tree. But here, if you slip, um, you're going to roll down the hillside another four or five hundred metres. That's probably the last anyone mm. will hear of you. So you have to be very, very careful. So this isn't a, a pilgrimage for everyone. It's it's those who are very comfortable walking on, um, on technical terrain and have done some training. Yeah. Um, 800 metres climb is fairly substantial. That's almost yeah. to yes, the top of the Blue Mountains, and we're talking about that in one day, and then yeah. ascending again. Yeah. So not a walk to be taken lightly. No. And also not a walk to be done alone. Good yeah. point, that yes. Was, yeah. But what is fantastic about it is it is, as Richard says, incredibly beautiful because you're mm. in the mountains. But also you're walking village to village and so you're staying in tiny little guest houses yeah. run by the um, like local family. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're just sleeping, you know, on the floor, on 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 a tummy mat, you know, on your futon. Mm. Some of them have little hot baths. Oh yes, um, the, the onsen. Yeah. Oh. It's just fantastic. Yeah, you get these yeah. beautiful meals, you know, yes. that they make you, and so you really felt that you were quite immersed in the in the local community, and very well treated. The oh, treatment, yes. well, as a honoured guest. Oh, people were so Absolutely. kind. Yeah. So kind. Mm. Sounds like a wonderful cultural experience. Yes, as it was. Well as yeah. a, a pilgrimage experience. Absolutely. The combination yeah. of the mm. two. Yeah. Um, well done. Yeah, that no, it was fan- fantastic. <laughs> mm. So it would be a strong recommend for people to do, uh, but yeah, not not alone. There are lots of groups that do it actually. Mm. Yeah, yeah, but not. I wouldn't do it alone personally. Yeah. And yeah. we'll probably go back to Japan next year. Yeah, but not to the Kamada Cold. No, we'll do another route. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, But I would recommend it to anyone. Yeah. We'll add that one to the list. Um, mm. You are heading back to Spain to, to walk another Camino, one that not many people know about. Um, and I think that's planned for 2024. And it's called the Cami Catalan. I hope yes. I'm pronouncing it right. Yeah, yeah, but I'll, Catalan. Ask you, yeah. I'll ask you, Ali, to give us a little bit more information for those of us who don't know anything about this route. Yes, yeah, so the Camille Catalan, you can start further up, but most people start it at Montserrat Monastery, which is in Catalonia, just outside of Barcelona. So a very famous uh, monastery, uh, quite high up. And basically, you walk along, you parallel the Pyrenees, you walk along the base of the Pyrenees towards the west coast of Spain, where it meets up just before you hit the coast with the Aragonese, which comes over the Pyrenees. Yeah, from some parts. Yeah. yeah. At Haja. Uh, how long is it in total? It's not a very long route. It's about four weeks, I think. Yeah. 
four or five or weeks. Or 400 or 400 kilometers. I can't remember. There's yeah, a four there's a four, four in it. Four <laughs> you might just have to come and share that story with us next year when yeah. you return. And then after we've done that, we'll probably do one of the routes through the, the Picos to hit the West Coast. Yes. But Maybe the um, Vasco Interior? Yes. Yeah. Another one called the Vasco Interior, which means the interior Basque route. So it's the Catalan route, which will join up with the Basque route. Yes, from Iran to Burgos. Yeah. 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 And we'll, we'll volunteer, obviously, yes. again. Yeah for two weeks as hospice. Yeah. Great. It sounds like you have your next few years well planned out and yes. including a lot of Camino experiences. Yeah, we just have to hope that our Kohechi uh, injured knees, uh, mm. I'm sorry, our Manukodo <laughs> injured knees uh, survive to take us to Spain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we're hearing a lot of stories from Spain um, this year about record number of pilgrims arriving in Santiago and albergues being over full. Um, is that something that um, you're worried about as being hospitaleros or walking a future Camino? Well, it's not so much the albergues being full, is it? Well, no, there's a lot of talk about it. Look, I'd like to just give you some first-hand experience of this. So last year when we were hospies on the Frances at one of those times, so it was May, mm. wasn't it? Uh, at one of those peak times where we were reading on forums, the Camino is full, there are no beds, people are having to take a taxi, 50 kilometers, ah. and it was the sort of what the kind of stuff that we're reading now. Mm. Okay, in our albergue, which had how many beds? 32. 32 beds, we were never full. Oh. Interesting. And we were on the Meseta, which I know some people skip. Mm. Not one night were we full. And so we, after reading this stuff on the forums, we began to ask people coming into our albergue. Now, these were all pilgrims who were staying in donativos, municipales, you know, they weren't doing private accommodation. How has it been? Has it been very crowded? Have you had a problem getting a bed? No, not really. There was not one person who said they'd had to walk on because they couldn't mm, get a bed. Yeah. So that's really the difference between the municipal, the donativa albergues and the private. Yes. Exactly. So we think that the, the narrative around it's so full you can't find anywhere is driven by people who are trying to book. Yeah. And so their experience is everything is booked up. But for the people who are not relying on booking, it doesn't seem to me that there is a great shortage. And I think it's something to do with the changing demographic of the pilgrims. There are more pilgrims who are wanting to stay in private accommodation. That, I think, is where the pinch is. Yeah. And in the bookable private albergues. I am not convinced yet. I have yet to see evidence that the pinch is in the sort of yeah. lower end of the market, yeah. if you want to put it like mm. that, of people who are staying in municipales, donativos, um, these are places which can't be booked. Yeah. So the, the traditional way of doing the Camino, the traditional places to stay are still there mm. and they're still functioning mm. pretty well. It's always and that's really good news because for those people who um, want to have that uh, experience mm. at a municipal albergue or they don't have the funds for private albergue, yeah. mm -hmm. this is the way, or they just like to go the distance they feel on the day. Mm. They don't want to book ahead. Mm. Um, 
they have that option. Mm. Um, so let's hope that still holds true for this year so. and next year, mm. um, because that's that's a very valuable way of of walking a pilgrimage. Yeah. Is yeah. is is letting the day decide where where mm. you're going to stay Absolutely. that night and not have everything pre-booked. Mm. Um, there's a sense of freedom yeah, with being able able to mm. choose uh, day by day. Yeah, and also it's just sensible because, if, you know, there are things happen. You get an injury or you see a fantastic place that you just want to stay or you've got a sudden burst of energy and you just want to keep walking. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Um, yeah. And days can be unpredictable, mm. so um, you, want to, you want to make the most mm. of each day. Mm. I do... Wonder sometimes, you know, the back of my head, there's this niggling fear that the voluntary systems, you know, I was talking about earlier, um, might suffer. Maybe as people get older, they give up. Mm-hmm. Younger people don't have an interest. And maybe if people, local people, begin to see it as a kind of tourist destination rather than a community they want to support, it might be that the support system might. Weakened. I don't For the know. donative reasons. Yeah. I, I think a lot of the volunteers. That's, that's, that's a very pessimistic. A lot of the volunteers are older they because are. they're the ones who've got the time. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. It just yeah. shows how really important this hospital era training is yes. in countries like Australia. Yes. Yeah. Um, that we can help those yeah. municipal. Uh, Donativo or bad gays stay uh, yeah. viable. Much, yeah. Um, yeah. If we can help support them, it's it's yeah. directly assisting pilgrims yeah. to still absolutely experience that. Absolutely, and I think that's what motivates a lot of hospitaleros. We've got to make sure that the Camino is as inclusive as possible. That you don't have to mm. have a lot of money to walk it, yeah. and I think that's really important. I know that as Australians, we obviously were paying our airfares to yeah. go off to. Yeah. to Europe so by default uh, we must have we enough, have the yeah. money to do it but that's not true of everyone who lives in Europe some people literally do do walk from their own uh, front doors I mean, we've, so. met, we've met you know a few people who are obviously doing almost nothing yeah you know yeah very um, yeah very tight budget yes yeah, <laughs> yeah. well we hope the Camino can can continue being yeah um, inclusive Yes. for everybody. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much, Arlene and Richard, for yes. your volunteer work as hospitaleros, for taking on this this big role of the new Australian hospitalero trainers. Um, I think you both will do an excellent job and we look forward to meeting all the newly trained hospitaleros next year. Yes. yes. Um, well, we hope. We hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're doing a plug here and yes. we'll certainly do some... Um, um, some spreading of the word over the next uh, few months yeah. as yes. well. Um, yeah. Thank you both so much. I wonder if there's a poem that we have that we can end with. We certainly have. With. There you go. You get, you okay. Yeah. So this is one of the poems that um, we that we were talking about in Estonia, where, that we had translated into many languages. <laughs> and I'm just showing Margaret <laughs> here. Okay, we've got the Spanish... Japanese, what's the one of French, oh, Dutch, Catalan, Catalan Russian, Russian, Danish, Danish Latvian, Latvian <laughs> Italian, Italian, German, German Dutch, Arabic, Arabic, Lithuanian, Indian, 
Roma- Romanians. Yeah. Come there. It's Fantastic. Yes. Yeah, um, we, we might get you to read the English. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That would so, be wise. <laughs> yes. This is a really simple poem that's easy to translate. Uh, and it's about walking, and it is written by an indigenous American poet, and her name is Linda Hogan. And the poem is um, Walking, I am listening to a deeper way. Suddenly, all my ancestors are behind me. Be still, they say. Watch and listen. You are the result of the love of thousands. Thank you. That's beautiful. And what a lovely way to end the podcast. Thank you, Dan, for giving us the opportunity to share our Camino stories with your listeners. Um, We wish you well, and we hope you're back soon. Thank you, everyone. Buen Camino. Buen Camino. Buen Camino. Some 